The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com H-O-L. Good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. I don't know if it's morning where you are, where you are. Does that does that matter? When you are? Can I say that? I don't know if it's morning when you are. Sounds so weird. Let's start over. Good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. I don't know if it's morning where and when you are, and I don't know if you celebrate Christmas. That's okay. That's... Okay, we all need a little lift this year, don't we? If we can get it from Christmas, that's a good thing. And if not, we can look for it in literature. Because this is the History of Literature podcast, I'm Jack Wilson. I'm very happy that you're here with me today. We have a good show. Best Christmas Stories in Literature. We have a top ten. And I don't think I've ever made so many mistakes so many that I'm going to correct them after the conversation. So if you're listening to me, to your old friend Jack, and you feel like throwing your headphones against the wall, think again. Wait until I correct the mistakes. Then throw your headphones again. No, no, don't throw your headphones. Set them aside gently, with love in your heart. Hey, I'm not a perfect host. I'm just a guy reading books, doing my best to Keep up with the guests, and my listeners, and Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who will be here in a minute. People, this is a difficult time of year for me. I think I'm just overwhelmed. I'm in the sandwich generation, concerned about kids, concerned about parents. Everything rides on us. Every, everyone's happiness and safety and health and well-being. It's almost too much love to give. It's too much love pouring out of me. And so I just shut down. Is that strange? Am I alone in this? That I can't get it going? Can't get the, the engines racing hard enough? Or maybe they're racing too hard. I need to do more. That's the feeling. Not doing enough. I need to do more. Not doing enough to do more. What's that feeling? that love or guilt? And yet, I can think about myself for a moment. I need Christmas. I need the season. I love Christmas and the holidays. I'm deeply nostalgic. Deeply nostalgic. I have to give and give and give. But I also need a little room to think and remember. I don't need to get anything. I don't need any presents. But I do need time to reflect. I talk about this a little bit with Mike. He grew up in Manhattan. 
in the city, the cityscape, skyscrapers, the streets, the people, the subway, all those stores, lights, excitement. Mine was something else, the Christmases of my childhood. Mine was trips to the grandparents' house, driving through snowy fields, up gentle hills, over the river, and through the woods, on roads my father built when he was young and strong, and working road construction for the county on his summer jobs. That's community. That's people. We're losing that. Now I spend my Christmas on the phone with Verizon arguing about the bill, and T-Mobile arguing about their bill. I get five Christmas cards and a hundred scams. There's so many scams in the mail that I look forward to actual bills. So many scams out there. So much anger and frustration. I saw a script for a robocall the other day. Are you familiar with robocalls? This was for a medical equipment resupply service. The computer would call up the patient to see if they needed new supplies. And the protocol said, if the patient curses twice, they'll be transferred to a live person. Two curse words yelled at a computer. That's the, that's the threshold, the trigger. You can be pushed up to that point, and when you, you express that much anger, you get to yell at a real-life person and push all your anger in that direction. What kind of a world is this? Where's Christmas in all of this? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Oh, Charlie. There's Charlie Brown. I don't know, Charlie. I don't know. Where's Linus when you need him? Does Linus exist anymore? What's this? Who's this? Who's here? Have oh. It's Ella. Let your heart be light. There she is. Next Sweet Ella. Troubles will be out of sight. Oh, there's a voice so clean, so Have elegant, so relaxed. Listen to the, the, the hope in that voice. Next year all our troubles will be miles away. I'll be home for Christmas. Oh, Frank. Yes. You can plan on me. Yes. To all the people I've let down over the years, I'll be home. To all the people who love me, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. I will be home for Christmas. If only in my dreams. We're a little far away from books now, aren't we? Except that maybe we're not. Books are there to help us out. That's what literature does. It helps. It expands. It teaches. It explores. It excites. Deepens. It deepens. 
Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we look around in the world. I'm not just talking about commercialism here. We lost that fight a long time ago. I'm talking about something else. Something like a fight that has gone out of us. There's a spirit, a defense, a kind of caring that has been snuffed out. A candle being snuffed out is so sad. The room still has a little glow, and you see the smoke wisp away, and then it's darkness. Happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> Good Lord, what's wrong with me? This isn't what you need to hear. You need a pick-me-up. Let's jump into Christmas with both feet. First, the talk with five errors. Five errors, which I'll correct them all at the end of the show, and then... We shall get through this together, people. We will have our holidays, and we'll have our new year, and we will survive and prevail. Let's go! That's what I'm talking about. A wonderful Christmas time with Paul McCartney. Let's do this, book lovers. Let's, let's step into Christmas. Oh, Elton John, it's like it's on cue. Hello, Elton. Yes. Yeah, who's this? Bing. David Bowie. It's a Christmas festival. Isn't there Time anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? I do. I do. I'm sorry, Ram. I can tell you what Christmas Linus. is all about. There's Linus. Hello, Linus. It's a time for joy. Ella's Ella's back. Hello, Ella. Welcome. Welcome. It's a time of good cheer. Sonic We can do this. We can do this. Mariah, come on in. Why not? Why not, Mariah? Hello. Make room, everyone. Joy! Merry Christmas to you, George. Merry Christmas. Hello. Yes. Yes. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, George. Merry Christmas, George. Yes. Merry Christmas, movie house. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to you, George. Merry Christmas, you wonderful Billy and Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I'm wondering if you ever spent a Christmas in the country when you were growing up, or were you always in Manhattan? Huh, that's, uh, let me think about that. I probably spent, you know, I moved to Manhattan uh, from Korea when I was four, so I must have spent a Christmas in the country in Korea. Well, actually not. <laughs> maybe maybe I spent every Christmas in Seoul, the capital. <laughs> yeah, are, are you driving right. at the fact that Christmas in the city is is kind of a, a a poor man's version of Christmas. No, I actually I think there's two paradigms. I was thinking about this today. I think there's two paradigms for Christmas, at least in literature. It comes out there's there's the London paradigm, mm-hmm. you know, with the the shops are all lit up and there's there it's cold outside, but there's these warm fires going and you see the glow in the windows and. And the streets are maybe a little bit, even though they're busy, they might be muffled with snow. And it's a beautiful, you know, sort of the city at its best. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the paradigm, I think of it as the Charlie Brown Christmas paradigm, where there's these, you might be in a town or a house, but you're close to open fields and there's snow and you're never far away from the open space. And it's a little bit desolate, but it can also be very beautiful with the with the white expanses of of snow just stretching across the fields. I'm just thinking I barely was in the city. I mean, yeah. It would it would feel that way, but it wasn't really a I mean, I would go to Chicago once in a while, but it it was hardly ever in a a city like London or New York. Uh, but I I spent a lot more time in the Charlie Brown world. Yeah, I mean, I, for for a long time I I think I thought that snow was basically gray. <laughs> that <laughs> it's like two parts snow, one part soot, and <laughs> but as as you were evoking this image of, of winter and in, in the countryside, I was just remembering how my parents used to make me work at their electronics and stationery stores growing up during yeah. Christmas because the volume of business was so high and so busy. Right. That right. my sister and I were asked to work, and she got out of working because once she—I don't know what excuse she came up with—but I actually wanted to work because they would pay me fifty bucks a day. <laughs> but I think there was a bit of my personality showed that I kept working even though I didn't want to for the money. <laughs> so I have this image of—I have this association with Christmas of being overworked. Overworked. Yeah. So you were, uh, we might get to that in some of our stories here. Yes. We'll, uh, we'll see where we can place you in these. So let's start with our draft. Uh, I'm going to let you pick first, as always, and we're going to pick five each, and these are going to be literary Christmas stories. So 
I, I'll, I'll start with a Christmas Carol because I, I'm not uh, yep. sure I have enough Christmas stories, so I might as well make sure <laughs> I take one of yours. Um, so uh, you know, the Christmas a Christmas Carol. Uh, I'm trying to remember the first time I read it. It might have been a Mr. Magoo version of a Christmas Carol, the book, mm-hmm. a cartoon book, and then I saw the the cartoon movie. And there, there, there must be an old black and white version of it, yes. of it right? Who, who did, yeah, there's who a famous that? one. It's you know, I'm big, forgetting his name, but it's it's a very famous. It's uh, the hokiest ghost scene. I remember. It yeah, was, it scared the living daylights out of me as a kid. But then when I saw it again as an adult, I was like, "This is uh, this is pathetic." Yeah, <laughs> but it's such a. I mean, there's also the Bill Murray version. Oh yeah. There's the uh, for anybody who didn't catch that uh, a Christmas Carol. We're talking about the Charles Dickens Scrooge story. It's there's the uh, the Bill Murray version. There's a George C. Scott version that's pretty good. Uh, there's I think there's you know there's Disney versions. There's there's all kinds of. I mean, it's yeah. it's such an iconic story, and it's so. It's been so used and reused and adapted and and I don't know. Do you think it's the best ghost story ever? No, it, it it's up there because it's it, it really it, it's it's a it's a ghost story, but it's really about the kind of stuff that eats at you when mm-hmm. you're at your lowest point, right? And the fact they made it into a, a festive story. The ending, I still love the ending, but. Mm-hmm. I think it was it was at its best the first time you know I experienced the ending. Right, right. Although there's something nice about knowing that it's coming. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and when you you're kind of living through it, but you know it's like the roller coaster where you know you're going to get to the end eventually, and it's gonna yeah. you're going to be glad that you went through it. But there's a real payoff at the end. Yeah. I mean, Tiny Tim dies, right? I always forget that he dies. Does he? I think so. Doesn't he? I don't think he does in the movies. Does he in the story? Isn't doesn't it end? We're spoiling this. Although, are we spoiling it for people if we have no idea how it actually ends? If we're just guessing. Uh, no, doesn't he say "God bless us, everyone"? Oh, really? Who dies then at the? End? <laughs> he might be close to it. The goose dies. They I, slaughter the goose. I, I seem to remember there's death and suicide <laughs> in the Christmas. My Christmas Carol. Now here's a here's a quick quiz. I have a feeling you haven't read this in a while, so you're probably going to fail the quiz. How many ghosts are in the story? All right, so I, I want to say it's three, but is there four? There are four. Oh, so you're guessing the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future, and you probably don't know what the fourth one is. Um, is it the old? It's Scrooge's old business partner. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Marlowe. Right, right. All right. I was, I was going to try to trick you and say it was the ghost of when you're not sure what time it is. <laughs> but no, it's Marlowe. I think he sees him as the door knocker. Wow, right. You know, like he's looking at his door knocker and it turns into Marlowe's face. Oh, it's such a great, and it's such a great story. That was the point where my kids gave up. They had, <laughs> They were like, nope, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna go any further with this. They were a little young, so that was the part that freaked them out. <laughs> so it is, it it's such a great idea, you know, to have the 
the past and the present and the future. I don't know if that was done before Dickens, but certainly nobody's done it in such an iconic way. And to see yourself in the third person and to see your life. And it, it's very, it's a very simple idea. You see how much you've changed, how miserable you really are in the present. Even the present exposes him to a lot that he, he didn't comprehend before. And then to see the dark path that you're headed down, it's very, very chilling and, and haunting. And it serves its purpose. It's a real morality tale, but it does have... Uh, it just sort of has this stranglehold on Christmas stories in a way. It's a good pick for number one. And, I, you know, I think that people reluctantly find themselves thinking that they're like Scrooge. Mm. I think that, you know. They've I, gotten older and they've gotten a little more cynical and yeah. and, and jaded and greedy, I yeah. guess. Or And it's like this family can't afford a turkey. Like, so what? Yeah, you right. Know? You get to a certain age and you're like, I've. I've lived through a lot of families who couldn't afford turkeys. Yeah. Dickens didn't lose it though, right? He still kept up the hope, wanted us all to to be generous. Do you think it's too sentimental? Um, I I I think the loneliness and the the way that he is scolded keeps it from being too sentimental. But it's probably the limit for me in terms of Christmas stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll get to my, why my other picks don't really deal with Christmas, even though mm. they are yeah. Christmas picks. But I, I just find that Christmas is... To, personally, Christmas is only good if the rest of your life is going well. And that, mm. that, that's my principle. And it's, it's basically like this get-out-of-jail get card to lift our spirits. And I, I sort of find myself refusing to be happy if I'm not actually happy. Right. Kind of like Valentine's Day. <laughs> exactly. You know, what I found kind of interesting is I think when I was younger, Scrooge scared me. And maybe you were getting at this when you said everybody thinks they've kind of become Scrooge. I think I really identified with the family. And yeah. I just thought about the rich person that I, I didn't really recognize that as my father or my grandfather. It just seemed like this outside person. And I thought, oh, man, what if we were what if we were subject to a person like that and and just hoping that he would change and and that you'd be at his mercy, you know, if he decided that you'd have a good Christmas or not. And it just seemed kind of frightening. And I think now reading it or watching the story, I'm I'm with you. I sort of I put myself in Scrooge's shoes and think about personal transformation much more than I did when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean it to to have made Scrooge sympathetic on any level is, mm-hmm. is is incredible because now you know I, I sort of cheer for him to die, um, right? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's the thing. It it's like what what a loss. It's easy to say that the story should be about being generous toward the family, but a much harder task is to be generous toward Scrooge. You know, he's such a jerk that it would be easy to write him off and just say, well, who cares if he find some happiness at the end he's been so cruel and maybe he doesn't deserve it but i think dickens wants us to feel that for him too yeah manipulative a little bit as dickens often is so that's a good pick let me go to uh, my first pick which is as you probably guessed it's the dead by james joyce Mm, yeah 
which uh, is the beautiful culmination of a beautiful book, The Dubliners. And I think this might be the greatest ending. I think I didn't I choose this as the greatest ending of any story ever. I'd probably choose it as the greatest short story ever. So there's a lot. (laughs) It's going to be number one in a lot of lists. And the fact that it's really about Christmas makes it an easy choice for me. Of course, the theme here is can we ever really know what's in the heart of people closest to us? And another theme is, are we spending our our brief period of time on Earth as best we can? And it captures all of this, and it gets the melancholy of the holidays, which is, I think, why I like it so much. It's It's got the, the beautiful prose and the beautiful rhythm and the beautiful setting, and the there's the snow, and it, it really does remind me of Christmas. But I really, the, you know, the as I grew into adulthood, I really started to enjoy the melancholy parts of the holidays, the sadness and the passage of time and, you know, not just the the burst of joy that kids feel when they get their presents and they open them, but also kind of the wistfulness of people who are no longer with us or things that that didn't go your way and, and just the, the feeling of being at home, but also being full of joy, but a, a little bit, you know, one part sadness. It's like things aren't too sweet. It's a little bit bittersweet. I know we're, we're talking about books here, but I get that feeling so much from a couple of um, Christmas films. Well, one is uh, mm. mm-hmm. this French film, A Christmas Tale, where by Arnaud Desplechin, where Catherine Deneuve plays this matriarch who um, gets a blood cancer. And every year, her children and grandchildren come and spend Christmas and it's basically like a week-long party where they just mm-hmm. get eat and drink and put on theater plays for each other and then they go to mass drunk and then they continue to they eat some more and so on the back in the backdrop is the fact that she's dying mm. and it's it's a, it's just a beautiful film right right i'm i'm not familiar with that but i had written down under this under my my notes for this it's a wonderful life which has got that happy ending kind of like Dickens, but it's got that darkness along the way. And there's that, that scene, for example, where Jimmy Stewart is, is alone and he's, he's all broken up and he's saying, you know, show me the way God, show me the way. And, and Jimmy Stewart himself got lost as an actor. He was overcome. And he said, it's one of the few times in his acting career that he actually had kind of lost himself in the role. And it's, it's really a powerful scene and it, it, you know, people forget they they talk about the ending as being sweet and and saccharine, but there's a lot of edge to that film. Um, I was going to ask you what your favorite Christmas song is. Um, the singer songwriter Bright Eyes put out uh, an album of Christmas a uh, uh, album of Christmas covers, mm-hmm. and in it was a song that I went to Catholic school. I'm not Catholic, but I went to Catholic school, and the song that I loved as a kid, and I hadn't heard it in years, was uh, Little Drummer Boy. Oh. <laughs> and I have to say, I think that 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 is probably my favorite Christmas song. Right. Oh, that's great. I uh, uh, The reason I ask, I've got a couple of songs that I like, and they're both, they both have that kind of melancholy to it. And I realized this, I think, last year, that that, you know, the songs I tend to, step away from are the the ones that are all major key 
Right. Uh, you know, very bright and upbeat. And instead, I like I like Frank Sinatra's "I'll Be Home for Christmas," mm, yeah, which true. is that World War Two era song, and in which the character is not actually going to be home for Christmas. It's like <laughs> it's like you find that out in the last line that he says, you know, if only in my dreams. Uh, and you just it's like this soldier who's not going to be home. And then the other one I like is Ella Fitzgerald's version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's Which nice. she sings with, with so much feeling, and it just has that kind of, I think of it as kind of a depth to it. I've been calling it sadness or melancholy, but I think of it, it's really just a, a, a deeper and maybe a richer, more complex set of emotions. Okay, so why don't you give us your number two? So my number two pick is... I don't even know if Christmas occurs in this novel, but thinking about Christmas, uh, you know, of course you think of snow and you think mm-hmm. of being bundled and reading reading a, a very long novel in, in mm-hmm. the winter, at least I do. And so my number two pick was the, the famous snow chapter in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, okay. I urge, I just reread it last night, I urge people <laughs> to read it on Christmas. Because oh. even if you don't have the time to read 740 pages uh, twice, because Thomas Mann said everyone's a fa- every writer is a failed artist in another area of art, mm. and so mm-hmm. he was a he was a failed um, composer, and so he turned to writing uh, because he couldn't sell his. I mean, he he did sell a few musical compositions, but he didn't make it big. Mm-hmm. He, he thought the symphony was the perfect art form, not the novel. Mm-hmm. And he urged everyone to read The Magic Mountain twice. <laughs> which is a pretty cocksure thing to, to well, say. Well, how many, how many times have you read it? Well, I've read it four times. So. <laughs> <laughs> Only four? I would have guessed, I would have guessed more than that. So, but, um, so Snow is a, is, is about 50 pages long. And mm. the main character, Hans Kastorp, I'll, I'll disclose a few things here so if people haven't read it and are on the verge of reading it, maybe skip skip a few minutes. So uh, Hans Kastorp um, goes up to a sanatorium to visit his cousin, Joachim, who has influenza. And he plans to spend three weeks there, and he ends up spending seven years. Mm. And in the snow chapter, and it's it's in the Alps, it's on the Swiss side of the Alps in a town called Davosplatz, which is now the site of the, I think, the G8 Economic Forum. Right, right. So one of these years, I, I'm kind of hoping that somebody will fund my visit <laughs> so I can go. <laughs> Wander around looking for the, the sites of the Magic yeah. Mountain. Well, they turned the actual Magic Mountain uh, it, there was a sanitarium there that Thomas Mann's wife went to for a month. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she went there for a month and ended up staying there for about seven months and then turned to him and said, I need to get out of here. Mm. Like, I cannot stay here. And so they, they've turned it into a Swiss chalet. So you can, it's a hotel now. Mm-hmm. But so that in the chapter, Hans Castor decides that he needs some fresh air and he decides to go do a little cross-country skiing. And as he starts to ski, the snow is beautiful. And Mm. then it 
picks up and he kind of gets lost. Mm. And he spends so much time trying to get his way through the snow and thinking about his life and thinking about, you know, what he's going to do for the rest of his life that he gets disoriented and has a dream Mm -hmm. that there are these witches and it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, and the witches are sacrificing a child. They're slaughtering a child. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. It comes out of nowhere because you have all this imagery of the snow and, uh, I'll read you some of it here. It's uh, So it be, the chapter begins, Five times a day, the diners at all seven tables expressed unanimous dissatisfaction this year's winter. They were of the opinion that it was very negligent. The winter was very negligent in fulfilling its duties as an alpine winter. And then um, he, he says, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's, he says, uh, he was an invader who came at his own risk, whose presence was only tolerated in an eerie, foreboding way. Born a stranger to remote, wild nature, a child of civilization is much more open to her grandeur than are her own poor sons, who have been at her mercy from infamy, infancy, and whose intimacy with her is more level-headed. So, throughout this chapter, his tone of voices is very biblical. It's mm. kind of like hands is uh, subject to these primal forces. And, you know, I think winter it, of all the seasons kind of makes you feel like it's death around the yeah. corner. Yeah, that's a theme. And I don't want to steal your thunder, but I've, I've got a couple of stories coming up that I did not choose that really hit that yeah. hard. So maybe I'll do that before I pick my last one. I'll go over some choices I didn't pick. But yeah, that's it's definitely I mean, it's it's pretty hard to to uh think of Christmas without thinking of snow and and to think of snow without thinking of of cold and then the alternative of being inside and being warm and there you know, so much of this is about home. It's about journeys and about home. A lot of these stories. Yeah, and so it's it's amazing that Jesus, the story of Jesus takes place in the winter mm-hmm. because it's it's sort of like the the kernel of life from nothing. You know? mm-hmm. So, you know, he has this strange vision of these witches killing a child, and he's surrounded by the. He's in the Swiss Alps. He's surrounded by all this wonderful snow, and then he sort of comes out of it, and he realizes that he is right where he started. That he was so confused, he actually went around this path and ended up right where he started. And then he descends from this area to a little uh, level valley, and he meets with some colleagues, and they're like, where have you been? You know, and he was like, oh, God, I was gone for hours. And they were like, no, you haven't. You you were gone for like two minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the... M- most surreal passage in all of Thomas Mann's writing. And I, I just think it's, I'm waiting for it to be made into a children's fairy tale. <laughs> okay. Well, not a Christmas story, but I can see why you chose it, it with the, uh, the winter and the snow. It's a, it's a, it's a good choice. Okay. So I'm going to take my next pick. It's almost a cliche, but I'm going to argue that that's part of its charm. And it's O. Henry's Gift of the Magi. 
Hmm. I don't know and, that story. Oh, okay. Well, good. Good. Then I guess it's not a cliche. So, you know, O. Henry kind of gets a bad rap that stories are, his stories are not adult and they're not as mature as, as someone like James Joyce. And we talked about him during the, the endings, our, uh, our episode on endings, that his endings are big surprises. They're big reversals or big revelations. And they're kind of like what a kid would think, how a kid would think a story should end, some big twist. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, my sister and I got this box of books from an auction. And there was a, a book in there of short stories by uh, Guy de Maupassant. Mm-hmm. And my sister and I read a few and we were just dumbfounded. And we just we just couldn't believe. We were like, how did anybody publish this? This guy <laughs> has no idea how to end a story. you know. And it was because there wasn't like this big wrapping up or a big call back to the beginning or, you know, things just drifted along and they were, they just ended in a kind of ironic way, but not, uh, not with a big twist. And that's because we were used to reading stories that came out of O. Henry's playbook. And the gift of the Magi is his classic of this kind of form. And I'm, as I describe it, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. It's, it's a, it's about a, uh, this is a big spoiler alert. If anyone, uh, is, uh, planning to read the story. So uh, there's a poor married couple and they're in love and they're trying to buy one another gifts for Christmas, but they're very poor. They have no money and they each have something that they're very proud of. She's proud of her long hair and he's proud of his gold watch. (laughs) So he sells his watch to buy her combs for her hair, but she cuts off her hair and sells her hair to buy him a watch fob. (laughs) And then they exchange gifts at the end and, you know, there's this big surprise. The reader doesn't know what's going to happen. And the, you know, they open their gifts and they're like, there's a big surprise where they say, you know, but you, you, you sold your watch to, to buy me these combs, but I sold my hair to buy you the, the, the watch fob. And they both, you know, and then they realize how much they love each other. It's kind of like the Pina Colada song. Are you familiar with that song? Mm-hmm. The the one where the, the married guy thinks his marriage is on the rocks, and so he puts an ad in the paper and for a new love, and then he meets the woman who matches all of his characteristics and the woman of his dreams, and it turns out to be his wife who was doing the same thing. And, you know, that's like an O. Henry ending. <laughs> <laughs> so even though it's kind of a cliche and it's kind of kind of hokey, I read it because of this, getting ready for this episode, and I got chills. Even as wow. I, even though I knew the story, I was reading it because it was such a cliche, and even so, I was I found myself getting this little, getting swept away by it, just because I was like, oh, they love each other, <laughs> you know, like like that, like it's true Christmas. It's they just they have everything, you know, they're poor but they have everything, and it just it swept me away. So I'm going to give him credit for it, picking it as number two. The other thing is I remembered that uh, Steve Martin had had written a parody of this story in his one, that book he wrote when he was still pretty young, uh, Cruel Shoes. Uh-huh. In that one, there's a young couple in there in love, and the guy is very proud of his shin bones, and the woman is very proud of her cuticles. And so he sells his shin bones to buy her cuticle frames and she sells her cuticles to buy him shin bone polish, which is, (laughs) which is, which is kind of dumb. But, uh, 
there's a part at the end where he wobbles over to her <laughs> where I was I was laughing out loud at the at the wobble. So anyway, that's the gift of the Magi. It probably spurred all kinds of imitators and people who have done tried to do something similar about the way you give gifts and you find out uh, you know, you're surprised by what someone has done to get you a gift and then if if it's reciprocated then you learn that that two people that love is greater than than the gifts that you could give and and then the tangible things. This is the other thing about Christmas, you know, the the whole gift giving thing. It, <laughs> it, it it seems like after a certain age, it's you're really better off just buying yourself a gift. Yeah, that kind of happens, right? For yeah. for moms and dads, yeah. it's really uh, the kids that are forced to wait. I'm I'm Korean American, and so in in Korean American Korean culture, you're expected to keep you keep having to buy um, your parents gifts because mm. mm-hmm. I, I know in certain other cultures the, the gifts go downward. You only buy for the kids who are younger, for people who are younger than you, mm-hmm. and so I end up buying my mom socks. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the that's my way of just saying that Christmas is there's so much forced upon you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as someone who loves Christmas, uh, I, I I think I just love it in my own weird way. I like it too. I like that everything kind of changes. That suddenly there's these decorations up and people are acting differently, and you know we're on a different schedule and and all of that. But uh, maybe you could try something other than socks. How about a nice blanket? No, I I went, um, I think, three years buying her a cashmere scarf. <laughs> so I've exhausted that. You know, th- th- this also is you know, when you see during Christmas all these boxes, toys for tots and mm-hmm. warm coats for the winter, you know, and, you know, I, I do my bit and pick up some stuff and deposit it. But it's sad that, you know, we can be dicks the whole year and then at Christmas make this token gesture. Well, that's Scrooge. We're all Scrooge. Yeah. That's a, so that gets to me a little bit. That, And what about the kids who can't, don't get toys at all and they're reminded that it's Christmas? Mm. You know, yeah. That's the other thing that kind of eats at me, which goes back to what you were saying about Valentine's Day. You know, right. How Valentine's Day could be the, the cruelest holiday coolest holiday if you don't have a Mm-hmm. So, well, I'm going to get to this theme in one of my future picks. So why don't you go ahead right. with your uh, with your number three? So my number three was a classic Christmas story: Dostoevsky's "A Christmas Tree and a Wedding." Ooh, yep. Yeah, I don't I don't know if people know this story, but I reread it. So I read it years ago, and I kind of forgotten the beginning. So I was I was delighted by the beginning. The begin. So it's about a guy who is at a New Year's Eve party. Christmas mm-hmm. has just happened. And he sees this little girl and this very awkward little boy. And the two of them start playing. And then out of the corner of his eye, the narrator, who's a grown-up, sees this not-so-likable man, old man with whiskers and, and a, a big frown on his face. And he's interested in marrying the little girl I mean, she's not, she's, I think, 11, uh, because of her family money. Mm-hmm. And 
it's so suspenseful because right. you, know, you think the reader is in disbelief that this is going to happen. Yeah. And then it happens. It, it segues to the wedding. But I had forgotten the way it begins. It begins, the other day I saw a wedding, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. But no, I would rather tell you about a Christmas tree. The wedding was superb. I liked it immensely. But the other incident was still finer. It's such a great opening. Right. But wait, since you've talked about the ending, the old man doesn't marry the the young girl, does he? No? Did I misread this? Are you going to tell me? (laughs) Did I read it too quickly? (laughs) I thought the old man goes to a wedding and realizes Mm -hmm. that the girl that he was hoping to marry had actually married like the servant boy or something who had stood up for her when the old man was kind of lecherously uh, teasing her or flirting with her. Really? <laughs> maybe we read, maybe it's two different translations. It says, uh, I looked at the bridegroom carefully. Suddenly I recognized Julian Mastakovich, whom I had not seen in all those five years. Yeah. Isn't Julian Mastakovich like the, a kid who's sort of like her age? No, he's the... He's oh, the, that's the old man? Yeah. I like your version. <sighs> that cheers me I up. I think I got like the Baudlerized version. Somebody was <laughs> somebody was trying to make it more palatable. That's well, not such a great ending. How's that a great ending? No, it's not a great ending, but it's yeah. it's one of those endings that... Uh, I like, that's how life is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. That and, right. And that's my that's my next pick too, because I, I just there's a visceral part of me that is annoyed by everyone singing and yep. you know, celebrating Christmas when there's so much wrong, which is not that, that that that's not such a good thing either. When you know I'm ruining it for everybody who's who simply want to have like a nice couple of days. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and if you think about it from the point of view of the writer the author, right? Like it, it would be easy to write a story about kind of a bleak Christmas if that's what you've been having. Yeah. And you'd be thinking, you know, well, I'm just going to capture this feeling that I have, which is that Christmas isn't wonderful for everyone. But what if you're somebody who Christmas has been the highlight of your year and you really do want to talk about that was the, the part of the year when my heart actually felt pure and I felt renewed and I felt, you know, joyous and, if you try to get that down, you end up writing something that's maybe kind of schmaltzy and yeah. I mean, it's it's a challenge to write, you know, a, a novel about Christmas. I, I think in in recent memory, I can't really think of one. Mm, yeah, there's very few. And yeah. I'm gonna go. Let's go to my next pick because I'm gonna stick with the Russians, uh-huh. and I'm gonna choose uh, Chekhov's story at Christmas time. Oh, I've never read it. So I love this story. It's it's about a daughter. There's a daughter who's been separated from her family who lives in the country mm-hmm. for a few years, and she's written them letters, but her husband is a soldier, and he always kind of forgets to mail them. <laughs> and so this couple who can't write, they're just desperate for news of her and for how things are going and, and to know that even just that she's alive and that her husband is alive and where they live. And so finally... They go to a man. They can't write, mm. and so they go to they go to a, a man nearby in the country, and they pay him to write a letter 
on their behalf. And the part... Oh, the I, part, did, I have read this. You have read this? Ago, yeah. The part of the story that I just love oh, is they give him, like, they, they give this man, like, a few uh, phrases that they want to say. Like, you know, they want to wish the daughter happy Christmas and hope that she is well and that they send a parental blessing. And then they kind of trail off because they don't really know what to say. And the mother is thinking of all these things she wants to tell her daughter about all the things that have happened to them and the village and, and the people that they knew and and everything in, that's happened in the past four years. Uh-huh. But the writer suddenly gets really officious mm-hmm. and he starts inserting all of these stock phrases about being a soldier and and, you know, just things that really would have no place in a Christmas letter, but it would be something that he's trying to help them out, trying to think like, well, what would be important to say? And it just that part, that's not the end of the story. That's just sort of the middle. And I, I, I think I'm not going to tell the ending because I think everyone should go read the story. And it's it's got this um, this beautiful ending. But that part of the story just rang so true to me. And it reminded <laughs> me of this experience I had when I went to Hungary and I spent days traveling to try to find my relatives and they spoke no English and we kind of reunited two branches of the family that had been apart for 75 years or so and we're at this restaurant and it's this was just after the Cold War so there weren't a whole lot of people who spoke English and it was kind of hard to find an an interpreter Mm -hmm. but they had a friend their family had a friend who was a a musician. So he had been to Europe and he spoke some English. And so he came along to interpret. And he, so I'm sitting there with this guy, I guess I was probably uh, 23, 24. And I'm sitting there with this guy who's like a 45 year old man who's a, a second cousin or something. And this guy is just pouring his heart out to me in Hungarian. And I can't understand a word. But he's obviously getting very emotional. He's got tears in his eyes. And he he talks for like a minute or two without interruption, just (laughs) telling me what's on his mind. And then he finishes. And so I turned to the interpreter, (laughs) whose name was Julius Veros. And I turned to Julius Veros. And I'm like, yeah, what what was that? And he says, "Uh, that's not important. <laughs> and then he asked me questions about like like the food in America and like like how long it would take to get from from Boston to Philadelphia and like all this stuff. And I'm just I'm like you're you're kind of getting in the way here. You know we're so dependent on this guy. And that that part of the Chekhov story really reminded me of that. And then and then the ending, it, like I said, I don't want to ruin it, but it really goes to the heart of what it means to be apart from one's family and. And the ending is is a beautiful checkoff uh, where it could mean a couple of different things. So it gives you some hope, but also some some uh, sense of reality that that the hope might be a little bit misplaced. It's it's maybe not one of Chekhov's best stories, but I'm such a sucker for Chekhov that that uh, I like it anyway. Yeah, no, I read it years ago, but I'm, I'll reread it because I, I I just remember the part where he, he the the guy who's supposed to be helping doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, I remember being very upset. Yeah, right. Uh, like, oh no! Young. Like, don't you understand how important it is? Yeah. You know, but you see, you know, on the other hand, like you kind of see, like neither neither parent is talking. The you, it's only because we're given access to the 
the mother's mind and we know all the things that she's trying to say or that she would like to say and she just can't choose which one but you know from the from the writer of the letter's point of view they're both just standing there saying nothing so he's filling the silence with with some of his stock phrases but it's it's a it's a wonderful checkoff moment okay so are we up to number 4 now yeah my my fourth pick is the little match girl Oh, Which... that's the one that I was going to use as uh, one that I was not going to pick. So, I, I mean, if people oh don't God. know the story, it's it, it's heartbreaking. A little girl <sighs> is sent out by her father to sell matches. And in the past, when she's come home and been a... So it's by Hans Christian Andersen, D- Danish poet, children's author. So... In the past, when she's failed to sell matches, she comes home and the father beats her. Mm. So she knows she has to sell matches, and she's cold. So she lights a match to stay warm, and she does that until she runs out of matches, and then she curls up and she dies. Yeah. And the next day, passerbys find her body, and um, her grandmother comes and says some eulogy about how her soul has ascended to heaven and then the story ends yeah i think doesn't the grandmother die too <laughs> i don't it's remember. like i think she freezes to death as well oh. i thought maybe the grandmother freezes to death the little girl watches it and then she has kind of this vision of heaven and then she dies too and it just it, it's the worst <laughs> it's like the worst i used to have this on a record my mom used to have, you know, we had this this thing of like this Christmas stories record and uh-huh. that story would come on and it would it dramatized the the little girl and you you'd hear her lighting matches yeah. and being like, "Oh, just one more. <laughs> I'm so cold. Just one more." And then, you know, the the whole part where she dies, it's just it was awful. It, <laughs> It's got to be, I mean, Dostoevsky has a story like this too. I don't know if you were going to take this as number five, but he's got a story called The Beggar Boy and the Christmas Tree. Uh-huh. And it's another one where where the child freezes to death. It's what we were talking about before of of snow and, and that it's really, you know, nature can be uh, horrendous and snow can be very yeah. dangerous and, and authors seem drawn to that as to include the risks, but but some of them, I think, get a little carried away and and actually have the people uh, the people expire. I was going to say that the only other story that might be uh, as bad as the Little Match Girl is another one by Hans Christian Andersen called mm-hmm. the Fir Tree. Did you ever read that one? No. What's the plot so, of that? So the Fir Tree, I think, is even worse, and that was also on this record that we had, and it was dramatized. It's about this tree that lives in the forest. It's a little tree. And we're kind of given access to the tree's thoughts. Uh, hmm. It's close, close third person, or I guess close third tree, you'd, <laughs> I guess you'd say. So the little tree longs to grow up and, and wants to be part of the beautiful celebration of Christmas. And there's rumors among the trees that you get to go to this house and you get to wear all these fancy things and all these these decorations, and you're like the hero of Christmas. And so... It happens to him. He gets big enough, and he gets chosen, and he goes to this this family's house. And then I'm going to read the ending of the story, the last few paragraphs of the story. In the courtyard, some of the merry children were playing who had danced at Christmas round the fir tree and were so glad at the sight of him. 
one of the youngest ran and tore off the golden star. Only look what is still on the ugly old Christmas tree, said he, trampling on the branches so that they all cracked beneath his feet. And the tree beheld all the beauty of the flowers and the freshness in the garden. He beheld himself and wished he had remained in his dark corner in the loft. He thought of his first youth in the woods, of the merry Christmas Eve, and of the little mice who had listened with so much pleasure to the story of Clumpy Dumpy. "'Tis over, tis past," said the poor tree. "'Had I but rejoiced when I had reason to do so, but now tis past, tis past.' And the gardener's boy chopped the tree into small pieces. There was a whole heap lying there, the wood flamed up splendidly under the large brewing copper, and it sighed so deeply. Each sigh was like a shot. The boys played about in the court, and the youngest wore the gold star on his breast which the tree had had on the happiest evening of his life. However, that was over now, the tree gone, the story at an end. All, all was over. Every tale must end at last. <sighs> boy yeah. yeah so imagine <laughs> this dramatization on this record where it's this tree of like like what are you doing why are you chopping me you know and they <laughs> and you hear this tree being like like shoved into a wood splitter it was just awful completely <laughs> traumatizing i don't know why the story uh -huh. I was trying to find out why would people consider these good stories for children, good Christmas stories. And the, the thing I found online, someone said about the little match girl, mm -hmm. called it, uh, quote, a beautiful story to remind us to be charitable and appreciate what we have, mm. which is like, yeah, yeah, that's like eating crushed glass is a beautiful mm. meal because it makes normal food go down so easy. Um, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Merry Christmas everyone Every tale must end at last The tree's gone Chopped up Burned You're gonna die too You know Just I, brutal I, I, I Maybe Maybe that You know I, I have that general attitude Toward life At work A client was telling me The other day Like oh you know Whenever I, I need a calm voice I turn to you Because you never get stressed uh, And he was like Why do you not get stressed And I said to him are the Germans dropping bombs on us? Are we in the London tube <laughs> cowering? I mean, we're we're we live in like a stable society. Mm. And he was like, "Oh, is that, is that are those the thoughts that run through your head?" <laughs> and I and I said, "And also, like, do I have blood cancer?" Right. You know? Yeah. Ah, oh, so that was your pick, right? So that was number four for you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I'm i actually running out. I'm already down to my number seven because of uh, things that I had jumped over and, and you took a couple of mine. So I am going to take, uh, this one's a little bit of a surprise maybe. It's a story by Entozake Shange, which mm. is uh, it's from 1982, and it's called Christmas for Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo. And it's a great story about a poor but loving black family and the way that they kind of create their Christmas. And they they know each other so well. And the mother is just, she's got these beautiful ideas for how she, she gives all of the kids notes to find their present. And, and she gives them all kind of the perfect present for knowing who they are and, and what they need and what they want. 
But really, what's great about this story is it's almost like the anti-Scrooge in a way because Mm -hmm. there's also this family has this wealthy white benefactor who shows up and she every year she comes and and you can tell that she this is kind of her habit and she intrudes on their holiday by giving them money. And so it's kind of about the way that charity comes with condescension. But the the best part about it is that the way that the mother is territorial about her role. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, this woman comes and they don't turn the money away and they tolerate the woman but it also, she's not viewed as this, like, like oh my God, I can't wait till she gets here so she can make our Christmas, and do you think she'll bring the money again this year? You know, it's not like that at all. Ms. Fitzhugh is the, is the white benefactor, and so this is, here's a little excerpt from it. Nevertheless, Ms. Fitzhugh hugged each, each one, that's each of the girls, each one with her frail blue-veined arms, gave them their yearly checks for their savings accounts she'd established when each was born. There be no talk that her Negroes were destitute. What she didn't know was that Hilda Afania, that's the mother, what she didn't know was that Hilda Afania let the girls use that money as they pleased. Hilda believed every family needed only one mother. She was the mother to her girls. That white lady was mighty generous, but she wasn't her daughter's mama or manna from heaven. If somebody needed taking care of, Hilda Afania determined that was her responsibility, knowing in her heart that white folks were just peculiar. Why, Ms. Fitzhugh, that's right kindly of you, Hilda honeyed. Why, Hilda, you know I feel like the girls were my very own, Ms. Fitzhugh confided. And I just, it's such a, it's such a uh, nice kind of corrective story, you know, that Christmas usually is about how generous someone is and then how grateful someone else is. And in this one, it's not like she's not grateful, but she's also keeping things in perspective and she's she's got a kind of pride in her own ability to to not be impoverished. It's just a, a fun story and it's really well done and it's a very warm story. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah, like it, like uh, you were saying, I actually got this book called The Literary Christmas just because I couldn't find anything that was kind of from the last, you know, 60 or 70 years. And this was my favorite one from that book. Yeah, for my fifth pick, I, I again, didn't really go with a Christmas story. I just went with a winter story, Norwegian Wood by, uh, by Mirakami, because mm. the core of the novel are a host of scenes at a sanatorium in uh, in the mountains outside of Kyoto. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help but think that Hirokami uh, had Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain in mind when, when he wrote this. Mm. The, the narrator shows up and he meets this, he's looking for his friend, uh, and he meets this other woman and she seems to be kind of like a guide or someone who works there and then it's revealed that she herself is a patient mm-hmm. that all that everyone is a patient that there are really no doctors and they're all helping each other get better and then looming over these scenes are the fact that there are five suicides in the novel mm. and there's something about the winter scenes and the description of the isolation that really for me captures what you're kind of striving against with Christmas. 
mm-hmm. I guess it goes back to the fact that I can be optimistic thinking about all these miserable things <laughs> like suicide. <laughs> well, there's something, I mean, the, my number one choice is called the dead. There's something about, <laughs> I think maybe that's the pleasure of literature, right? Is there's, there's something about life, you know, that, that it's, it's looking at life in all of its aspects. And I think most people who love literature love life. And they love the ups and the downs and the the good and the bad. And so it's not just trying to pretend that one holiday fixes everything, even temporarily, but, but there are issues and problems that stick with everyone all through the holidays. And, and stories that kind of reflect that are, uh, are things that I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the book, when it came out, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but Murakami actually had to move to Germany because um, 10% of Tokyo read the book uh, that year. Mm. So he was not only stalked, his parents were stalked, and I mean stalked, approached. Mm-hmm. So he had, he actually moved from Tokyo to Germany for five years because of the popularity of this book. And... They they were saying that that the book was in Japanese culture. The idea of making a book about death and suicide is just out there. Mm, <laughs> it, right. It, it, you know, it's one of the big taboos. Mm-hmm. The Japanese apparently have like three words for shame, and uh, shame can be triggered by so many different things. And certainly, suicide or thoughts of suicide is very are very shameful. Right. So on that, on that pleasant note, I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Happy holidays. Uh, so let me tell you a few of the things that I'm not picking. Uh, yeah. you, you already picked one of the ones I was definitely not picking with the little match girl. Um, but, uh, I'll take that some, as a compliment. Some, some honorable mentions. I thought about taking the adventure of the blue carbuncle, which is a Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson story where they solve a, the mystery of a stolen jewel that turns up in the throat of a Christmas goose. <laughs> and I really, I mean, the thing that, it's not a great story, it's not even one of the best uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, but I guess all Sherlock Holmes stories are are kind of good. And it's also, it's got London, you know, London at Christmas. And like I was saying, I think that's probably from Dickens, but it it is such a, a Christmas setting. And then I thought, well, maybe I should just take as a category all of the genre stories with detectives or recurring characters and then they have a Christmas mm-hmm. episode or installment, I guess is is the right word. And there's a you know, Agatha Christie's got one with Poirot and and uh Magre's got uh, there's a Magre's Christmas and Rumpel of the Bailey has got a Christmas story. Um, there's something nice about settling in with the familiar and just enjoying the coziness of something that isn't going to challenge you too much. I know I've been talking about you know, literature being about life and complexity and everything, but it's also, it's kind of fun to just, uh, turn on some, some easy music and, and listen to, uh, and read one of these, one of your favorite characters going through a Christmas episode. Then another one I passed over was how the Grinch stole Christmas, which is, uh, another one that's got some edge to it, at least in the first half. It, it's, it's something I actually used to not be able to watch that show as a kid because the Grinch disturbed me. And then I thought, um, you know, that was actually a book, but a Charlie Brown Christmas is a beautiful story. It's a television show, so I ruled it out. And It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorite movies. But mm-hmm. even though that's 
it, almost like a novella. It's so, uh, or even a short novel. It's it's such a good story. I didn't want to take a a film. There's a story by Willa Cather that I read and I had high hopes for. And I think you had said you had read some Tolstoy that you were, uh, you know, there's that that Tolstoy story is often cited as oh uh, yeah, Papa as one of the famous Christmas ones. Yeah, yeah, but it's not very good. No, it's... and. People often uh, people often cite this Mark Twain Christmas story, and it's mm-hmm. really not a story at all. It's like a letter that he wrote to his daughter, and it's 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 very weak Mark Twain. I'm surprised that people shows how desperate people are to find some kind of literary Christmas story. I yeah, guess exactly. But, I was I was thinking of doing an updated version of Papa Panoff and seeing if anybody else, um, if anybody caught on. Yeah, <laughs> taking my hand at okay, writing a Christmas story. Right. Right. So Willa Cather's got this story called The Burglar's Christmas, uh, which is from 1896. And it's set in Chicago in the 1890s. It's about a man coming to grips with his failure. Mm-hmm. He's failed at everything and he's at the end of his rope. He's thinking about drowning himself in Lake Michigan and he decides that he's going to rob someone for Christmas. <laughs> and then he's while he's thinking about doing this, a woman drops a package and he immediately like grabs it and returns it to her. And then he realizes, like, I just failed at robbing someone. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm that hopeless. <laughs> and so he finally he breaks into a home, and I, it's got a surprise ending that I won't spoil. But it's, it's people describe it as beautiful, but I just kind of found it a little bit hokey. Yeah. There's a story by Mark Richard that people praise a lot called "Birds for Christmas" about. Uh, two boys who are in a hospital and all they want for Christmas is to watch the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. <laughs> and I read it and, and didn't quite get into it or get as much out of it as, as some people did, but that's um, that's another one that I considered. But then, because you've taken my other choices, I think what I'm going to do is go back to what I originally had as number three. Mm-hmm. which is the actual story of the birth of Jesus from the Bible. Mm. And I'm going to stay yep. agnostic here for the purposes of the podcast and look at this as a literary story. It's not a, a clean narrative as usual with the Bible. It sort of comes in, in a couple of different places and then things have been added to it in the years since. And a lot of the myth or a lot of the, uh, a lot of the details have been added along the way. I had heard that St. Francis of Assisi, for example, kind of put the the setting in the stable, that that wasn't, that that originated with him, I guess. I think they, they say they're staying at an inn, but they don't, in the Bible, they don't say that they're actually staying in a barn, in a stable. And Assisi did it to emphasize the lowly origins of Jesus, but also the um, the animals, to get the animals in the in the scene. But you know, it's it really is an awesome story. I mean, if this were, uh, it, it's such a great story that there's this, you know, all powerful being that creates the entire universe and then sends his son down to earth to to eventually die for mankind's sins. Which is, I mean, it's it's uh, it's quite a narrative. <laughs> <laughs> and it starts out with all the, for that being the narrative, it starts out with, with quite a beginning with the, the child who's born under the threat of death that the king is planning to kill all these kids. And so the the parents have to have to take off and the father doesn't even know whether it's his kid or not. And then they wind up in this inn 
and they have this baby and there's meanwhile there's these three wise men who are following the north star and trying to get uh to be present for the birth which is uh uh i was asking my kids if they knew the story i asked one of the questions i asked was well do you know where the kings were from where the wise men were from and uh my son said uh orientar <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> and he was thinking of uh we three kings of orientar oh, um, <laughs> wow so i had to <laughs> tell him that it was of orient r which uh is kind of hard to explain actually why they would be singing that <laughs> so he's i think he still believes that it's the, you know that they come from this land called orientar but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of pagan myths that seem to have fed into the christmas story and our christmas traditions like bringing in greenery and decorating it was uh mm. was something that um that came out of the out of pagan religions and and spirits that fly through the sky delivering things like santa that was that was from a pagan myth and even december 25th which isn't mentioned in the bible but but is near the winter solstice that that comes out of pagan rituals and so i i don't know whether whether these things are coincidence or whether they're true and i don't really have a a point to convey one way or the other, and I'm not out to attack anyone's religious beliefs or out to prove that the story is is true or anything like that. But I just like stories and how they're made and how they're put together. And this one has got all these miracles and the mystery and the the idea that that this story took hold thousands of years ago and it somehow got gathered together and and conveyed, and then it. It made it all made it all the way to us, and how it developed along the way, and how it's become so familiar and and so, I guess, important. And I mean, just the the transmission of that narrative is yeah. itself full of mystery and and miracle, and and it's a story. I like the story, and I like the story about the story. I I I have um, a bonus pick. I'd like to add. Okay. It's it's the novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, mm. who is from the Bronx and um, worked. He got the he got the idea for this novel because he worked for a detective agency owned by his father. And the novel, which is fantastic, I only read it because it became the basis for the film Die Hard. Oh. <laughs> So, I'm one of few people in in the world who who've seen the movie, read Roderick Thorpe's book, and also yeah. read the novelization. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, and the novelization. Yeah. So, yeah. I think if you haven't seen this, you should see it on Christmas Day. Die Hard. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a and Die Hard Two is is set at Christmas time too. Those are both classic Christmas movies. Yeah. I think you're right. I think Robert uh, Thorpe Jr. Lest he be, be forgotten. It's, <laughs> I'd say, uh, yeah, you're really doing your part here on the history of literature <laughs> to make sure that uh, Roderick Thorpe stays in the pantheon. I think, yeah, everybody, they should watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve and Die Hard on Christmas Day. That sounds good. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining me, Mike, and we will, uh, happy holidays. You too. Thank you.
do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, our old friend and president of the Literature Supporters Club. Oh, yes. It's my producer, Gar, who doesn't speak on air. He makes sounds like Tinkerbell. I'll thank you too, Gar, at the end. How about that? A special tribute. Anyway, you can find Mike on Twitter at LiteratureSC, where he's recommending a book a day for 10 years. He's in the middle of that project, and by middle, I mean he's about two weeks in. It's a big middle, like America and Santa Claus. No, no, no. No, Gar. We're not going to do that again. Too much chaos. But I do have to correct some errors. The famous actor who played Scrooge in the old version of A Christmas Carol was Alistair Sim. Forgot his name. When I speculated about whether A Christmas Carol was the greatest literary ghost story of all time, I should have mentioned two other books. I had them down in my notes and never squeezed them in. Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And of course, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Both worth reading. Next, I have no idea why I misread the Dostoevsky story, Mike. <laughs> Mike's reading was correct. After all, I read that story carefully, and I completely missed it. Completely. My reading was not even close. I think I got halfway and started rewriting the story in my mind. And instead of the actual words on the page, I was seeing the words that I wanted to see. Dostoevsky's version is dark and good, and it makes the same point as mine by giving us readers what we don't want. Shows us how much we want the happy ending. Well, my weird invented version has the happy ending. Dostoevsky's is better. In A Christmas Carol, Scrooge's partner is, of course, Marley, not Marlowe, which I think I said Marlowe, which in a way is too bad because Marlowe is such a great literary name. Marlowe on the boat in Heart of Darkness and Marlowe the detective. And at the end of that story, Tiny Tim doesn't die, of course, but in fairness to Mike, he, he does die in the vision that Scrooge sees with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Mike should have kept reading. It got better. So much for the errors. Now, I hope you all have a very literary holiday season and a very happy one and one full of love. And I wish you all the best with all my heart. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for... Oh, oh wait. Gar. I almost forgot to thank my producer, Gar. Merry Christmas, Gar. Happy New Year to you in jail. Oh. Yeah, funny. Really funny, Gar. I know you're... Unbelievable. This is the producer... You know, imagine where I would be if you would do... If you would lift a finger to help me or this show. Honestly, Gar... I had a Christmas spirit going, and you're just, you with your little jokes, you just ruin it all. 
No, why don't you? You could help with the website. You could do something. You could get a guest. You could do something. We're here tonight. Stand there and look at me. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The party's on. The feeling's here. That only comes to time of year.